Hey, it's Ross James, and you're listening to another episode of Songs That Save Me. Uh, today on the program, I've got Dave Schools, bassist from Widespread Panic and uh, record producer extraordinaire. Um, and he's also kind of a walking encyclopedia of music and weird records and, um, you know, a wealth of uh, information that <laughs> I've tried to pick as much off of as I can, for sure. I know that much. Um, so um, I was really excited about this conversation, and it definitely lives up to my expectations. It's cool hearing Dave take us back from when he's a young kid all the way until now and some of the songs that, that got him where he is now. Um, if you've been liking the podcast um, and wanting to hear these tunes that we talk about on the show, I've gone ahead and I made a playlist that you can access on Spotify. And there's a link to it in the bio on our Instagram page. So go ahead and give us a follow at Songs That Saved Me on Instagram. Click the link in our bio and then go uh, go follow the Spotify playlist because I'm updating it after every one of these episodes with the, the new featured tunes. Um, so without further ado, here's my chat with the one and only Dave Schools. So yeah, you're hanging in there during all this madness? You know, I have a confession to make. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually kind of enjoying it. <laughs> I think that's good. I think that's okay. I'd, uh, you know, been so busy for the last couple of years, rushing all over the country, playing gigs and doing productions and uh, not really spending much quality time at home. Uh, so I had kind of planned on taking a few months off of the production stuff when, uh, when we finished the Neil Casal tribute record. And uh, right. this quarantine thing has, has intervened. So <laughs> I'm testing it now and I'm kind of enjoying it. Well, good, man. Cool. Um, I'm really stoked that you were, uh, you're down to do this podcast today and I'm, I'm, you sent me a little teaser picture. So, uh, I'm, I'm jonesing to hear some stories behind some of these tunes that, uh, had a big impact on you. Yeah. I, there's, there's a lot of stories. I think, you know, maybe more so with musicians, um, or maybe not. I don't know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm only seeing it through my eyes and and you know there there is changing one's life the same as savings one saving one's life I I don't know but uh <laughs> you know I have a lot of them and I tried to winnow them down to some pretty important moments um so you know we'll just we'll see where it goes like I said uh surprise me Yeah well cool let's uh let's jump into it man I want to hear kind of one of the first tunes maybe earlier on um, in your life out of the ones that you picked that, uh, that came to mind? Well, I'd have to say it's, it's, it's the first one. And I, I grew up in this town called Richmond, Virginia, that uh, at the time when I was beginning to realize that the world was made of color and sound and tactile sensations and yeses and nos and all that, that, uh, you know, I didn't realize it wasn't LA or New York. It was kind of a, a cultural void. And I lived in a sort of middle-class suburban neighborhood with normal parents and we had a dog. Um, and I listened to Disney records and watched lost in space and mission impossible sitting on my dad's lap and all was well. 
Um, but I'd see things on the news about like the Vietnam War and guerrilla warfare. And in my little kid's mind, I'm thinking apes are fighting wars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and it's just kind of uh, weird, dumb memories. But the psychedelic scene was always getting a lot of news. And I always heard the term acid rock. And my parents, you know, spoke with much disdain of acid rock. You know, and I'm thinking acid, like, uh, you know, chemistry stuff. I didn't know what it meant. But there was this drugstore called Standard Drugs in Richmond. And they kind of had a little bit of everything, and a little bit of everything included um, a rack of the top 47-inch, 45 RPM singles. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, I must have been a good kid. I certainly didn't have an allowance or anything, but my dad allowed me to pick one. And they all kind of had picture sleeves. Um, but I saw this one and, and it was, uh, by a group called deep purple and it was a song called Kentucky woman. And I handed it to my dad and, and he looked at it and he's like, Oh, uh, this is a Neil diamond song. This can't be all that bad. Sure. You can have this record son. Um, so <laughs> on it went and the look on my dad's face <laughs> when he heard the sound of deep purple uh, you know, the newspaper just kind of came up over his face, but I listened, listened to that song constantly. It was the only one I had for a long time. After a while, I inherited a, a box of, of contemporary music that included Sly and the Family Stone and, uh, you know, Jefferson Airplane and Crimson and Clover, you know, whatever a teenager was listening to in like 1968, 69. Yeah. But, uh, Kentucky Woman with, uh, it's just, you know, crazy guitar solo, crazy organ solo, heavy duty rock. The sound just, it was visceral. You know, it wasn't two dimensional. It, the, the drums had, they like punched me in the solar plexus. Uh, the singer was, was off the rails. You know, there's a whole bridge section that comes to this frothy peak where he's just screaming, yeah, yeah, yeah. How positive, you know, and I just, dance around the house and, and, you know, did it change my life? Yeah. It made me realize the power of music and did it save my life? Absolutely. You know, it, it, it was kind of the first time. And I've said this a lot about being exposed to music of this era at a young age, listening to it felt like doing something wrong, you know, and if you're childing, you're doing childing wrong if you're not testing boundaries. You know, it, it kind of feels good to do something wrong that doesn't result in a broken vase or a stolen cookie. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, what were you listening to or what was playing around the house before you discovered Deep Purple? TV. You know, my parents weren't really music people. They had like a, they had some, some records that I inherited, uh, classical music. Uh, Ferranti and Tisher, is that how you pronounce it? Kind of like, <laughs> um, they had a lot of these sing along with Mitch records. Oh yeah. But they didn't really get, they weren't played. They had a uh, classic 50, we got married in the fifties turntable FM AM radio console kind of thing. Hi-fi kind of thing. Yeah. I love those. I love them too. <laughs> I've still got it. I wish I could get the, uh, the turntable to work. I know I got a Telefunken one downstairs. That's just my real turntable sits on top of it. <laughs> yeah, this one is, uh, I think it has a giant cow skull on it for decorate. Nice. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, it just wasn't a big part of their lives. They, if you look at like Mad Men, the home life of some of the people in the late sixties in that TV show, mm-hmm. basically how our house was decorated. They had cocktail parties with themes, the fondue parties, a lot of <laughs> smoking and drinking, but really not a lot of music, which is, was odd. And maybe that's why, you know, I was encouraged. There was mm-hmm. a family piano. You probably had one. It was just a stand-up piano with a piano seat yeah, yeah. Um, that opened up, and there was sheet music in there. Uh-huh. But, but did anybody, did your mom or dad play? Or uh, My mom played. She did? Yeah, she played, but she wasn't a musician. She was a dancer. But I think it was mm-hmm. part of this whole post-depression, you know, pre-TV generation that uh, you make music however you can someone in the family can play and sing and, and lead a musical session. I was never um, told I couldn't experiment with music. I'd bash on that piano, probably give my mom migraines, but she never <laughs> told me not to. When did, um, when did you want to start playing bass or playing rock and roll? Was it like shortly after hearing this Deep Purple thing or was that later? Did that come later? Well, the rock and roll thing came really quick um, because there was, like I said, I inherited a box of, of 45s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in like giving all of the proper credit to Jack Cassidy <laughs> and the bass line that starts off the song White Rabbit, yeah. I couldn't figure out what it was. I, 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 you know, you hear a drum and you can kind of get a picture in your mind. You know, maybe you've been allowed to stay up late enough to see buddy rich on johnny carson or something. <laughs> you understand how that sound is made you have a piano in your house you know you get that um you've been to church maybe and so you've seen an organ but that bass tone that kicks off it's percussive it's distorted it's overdriven i didn't know what it was and it set me down this path of i'm gonna figure out that thing you know and sooner or later i realized it was bass but um it just anything that felt great. And I mean, mm. a physical feeling. Yeah. Um, that's what rock and roll is to me. It's, it's a, it was a physical feeling. And, and at the time, you know, there was this whole talk of a generation gap and, and music, the rock music, the kids were listening to the acid rock. That's one of the things that pushed the generation gap wider. And so it felt rebellious. It felt good. Yeah. Um, was was bass? I mean, because of the the White Rabbit line was that the first instrument that you were that you started out. You didn't start playing guitar. You started with bass. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wanted to be a drummer because of Keith Moon. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to be a drummer too. That's the first thing I tried. <laughs> and uh, there are pictures of me. I guess one Christmas I got this little paper, uh, you know, kick snare right right tom and some crappy little symbol on a tiny little stand and <laughs> you know uh it became clear to me really quickly that i wasn't keith moon <laughs> but that i could smash the drum kit when i got frustrated <laughs> with the fact that i wasn't keith moon so it was a while before i was given another instrument <laughs> yeah, i hear you i hear you but i always respected the family piano i could i could go to that sometimes i would just get down under it Mm-hmm. And like put my head on the sustain pedal and, and reach up and just push like the lowest note and, yeah. and feel the box vibrating and feel the way that that felt in my bones. Um, mm-hmm. It was comforting. 
It's kind of like the heavy blanket thing, but with sound. Yeah, no doubt. I like that. Um, well, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say that's 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 a rad start to things. I mean, how how old were you? Do you remember how, exactly how old you were when you walked in that drugstore? Probably four or five. Oh wow, that young. Yeah, and, like so it puts it at like you know nineteen sixty nine. Okay, and then when you inherited those records, how how much longer after that was it, or had you been? Because I know what a record collector you are now. Did that start like? as soon as you got that first deep purple 45 were you like i i love this kind of thing i want to i want more absolutely yeah it did and with a little more selectivity or maybe research by my father and my, my mother it was uh it quickly went to a diet of of creedence clearwater revival uh-huh. <laughs> they put a fucking excuse me put a fucking single out every couple of months that burned up the charts both yeah. the a side and the b side um, as well as the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And those were deemed sanitary enough uh, for yeah. me. Um, so between the box of records, I mean, and, and man, sing a simple song, the Sly Stone song. Yeah. That and everyday people, for, for a kid my age, that is some of the best medicine and some of the best friends and companions I could have ever wished for were these songs. And just okay. drop them on the little turntable and just be set free. <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. We've got a our eight year old niece comes over, you know, and stays with us. And she, you know, I, I think turntables aren't as familiar, you know, to younger kids these days. And she gets she gets a kick out of out of playing records. She she just like picks one out of the shelves, you know, just random whatever. And it's like a magic trick, you know. It is. And, and with the like sonic accompaniment of air moving out of speakers, mm-hmm. as opposed to an MP3 thinly playing through some computer speakers. Yeah. Uh, the effect is, is it's total. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I jump ahead to when my wife was having some draperies changed around in the house and there was an interior designer here. Mm-hmm. And I had just gotten the turntable set up where it is now. And I was playing a Kenny Dorham record, the Afro-Cuban record. I'm mm-hmm. pretty loud. And they came walking into the room and the designer just stopped. And she just, she kind of looked around the space with this look in her eye. And she looks at me and she goes, why does this music sound so good? <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, I'm not going to explain to her, you know, the translation of the grooves through the needle and the electric yeah. impulses that result in air moving through speakers. But I mean, that's basically it. You're being pummeled with sound waves. Yeah. It's, it's not zeros and ones. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk to farmer Dave about sound bathing. Yeah, no doubt, man. Go visit the Integratron and, and have you done one of those? I haven't, you know, but uh, yeah. I do, I will put on headphones or I will listen to ambient music really loud and just mm-hmm. go to a different place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'd love to hear uh, what's next. What, uh, what's the next tune you thought of? Well, the next tune I thought of, and this is where we get R-rated. Although <laughs> it's not R-rated anymore. It's medicine. But uh, <laughs> So my parents got divorced, and we moved into this house in this cool little neighborhood in Richmond, and it was sort of a circular neighborhood. 
And just like every neighborhood like that, there is a bully that rides around on his bicycle or his uh, <laughs> dirt bike, you know. Mm-hmm. And this particular one was, I'm not changing the name because it's just too perfect because truth <laughs> is always stranger than fiction. His name was Skippy. He's about a year or two older than me and my friends. And, you know, I was a new kid in the neighborhood and sort of pretty slow to, like, pick up on bully tricks. I, did, I was an only child. I didn't have any brothers and sisters um, to beat me up and teach me stuff. Um, so I was constantly picked on by Skippy and then occasionally welcomed <laughs> into his weird world. Oh, wow. And one time he uh, came up and he's like, hey, uh, you know, come on over. Let's, let's hang out. So he went up and he had his like pre-adolescent teenager boys like attic converted room. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this was probably around 1978. Okay. Which would have maybe even 79. Couldn't drive yet. Didn't have a learner's permit. And, uh, you know, blacklight posters and a shag carpet and a uh-huh. super duper hi-fi stereo system and a toke master bong. <laughs> I don't know if you remember Toke Master, but it was the classic straight, clear plexiglass tube with the uh, red stem and the bowl attachment. I think they later changed it to Tobacco Master. Oh, no. This was really? the period, this was the great period where record stores were also head shops. Yeah. Yeah. So the two kind of went hand in hand. But anyway, he had what was called a Derringer bowl. Do you remember these? No. It was, you unscrew the single big bowl and screw this like thing attachment on that had six little one hit bowls and you could spin it like a, <laughs> like a revolver, like a revolver. Exactly. <laughs> so instead of like passing around a big smoking, hulking bowl full of coal and lumber, everybody gets a freshie. <laughs> everybody gets a freshie is like light smoke click pass you know <laughs> and uh so we there were two of us and the, the the thing had six hits in it and around it went and we were listening to some music i remember listening to leonard skinner you know big deal heard it on the radio all the time and then he pulls out this record uh that he drops the needle and i hear the sound of a man coughing and then the just heaviest slabs of <laughs> of rock bulk I've ever heard just came crashing out. It was Black Sabbath's Master of Reality record. And the first song, of course, is Sweet Leaf. And I know it sounds almost like a graphic novel, a graphic coming of age novel. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's the way it went down. The first time I ever got really stoned for real and Sweet Leaf is crushing me. Yes. And uh, that was a great afternoon and I had to get out of there and go home and I got caught because I was just stupidly (laughs) stoned. (laughs) I got caught. That felt bad. I disappointed my mom. Sorry, mom. Um, (laughs) But I had a paper route at the time and believe me, as soon as I got enough little old ladies to pay me the $2 for the weekly paper, I went to Gary's Records and Tapes at Willow Lawn in Richmond and immediately bought Master of Reality. And it it didn't leave me for a long time. Yeah. Something about the simplicity and and the heaviness of that whole record. And also the lyrical content. I mean, 
Sweet Leaf is like an advertisement for opening one's mind by smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. And a pretty good one, too. I mean, I have to say that the underscore <laughs> for the message of the song is pretty catch. <laughs> it's pretty catchy. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, were you in those records you inherited and some of the stuff you'd started getting on your own, were you listening to heavier rock like that? Or was this, you know, the first time you got into some of that like stoner rock kind of thing? I'd have to say that was the most stoner rock. There was, uh, you know, in that box were things like one of the ones that really got me was a group, a psych rock group from Texas called uh, the bubble puppy. And they had a, they were a one hit wonder and they had a song called hot smoke and sassafras, which is like a two and a half minute acid rock journey. Totally huh. Texas psych rock, really cool. Song. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also one of the ones that I was bought was the classic canned heat um, going up mm-hmm. to the country mm-hmm. with the fife, you know, and, and the nice melody and the guy, singing like he's Kermit the Frog, you know. <laughs> but on the B side of that was the most fucked up, cracked, fuzzed out version of an old blues tune called One Kind Favor, which I still sing with widespread panic because it's, it is like me tipping the hat to the stuff that created me as a musician. And that is definitely one of them. Yeah, um, that's so cool. Uh, I mean, when you when you play that tune with Panic, does it take you back to that sort of time? Sometimes it does, and sometimes I'm I'm kind of singing it from a place of all the fucked up shit that's going on in the world. Mm, um, yeah. Sometimes it's an honorarium to someone who's passed away. Oh wow! But it's it's one of those. It's it's in the it's in the Amer- the American blues book mm-hmm. for me. You know, like some people like Death Letter, that's their, you know, their death song that's in their blues book. And mine is One Kind Favor. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was some acid rock and heavy rock, but nothing that was slab like, you know, stoner <laughs> rock. Um, and that led me down the, 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 the Black Sabbath vortex. Were you playing uh, bass at this point? I was just starting. Okay. I was starting. And um, I was taking some lessons. I had taken piano lessons when I was like in second or third grade, and I just don't like doing the busy work. Yeah. Uh, I never liked it. It wasn't, you know, how could you possibly do enough busy work to like get a grip on what Pete Townsend and the who were doing <laughs> or the sort of syncopated American funk jive that Sly Stone was producing. Mm-hmm. You, you can't, it's, you can't be taught that. So um, it wasn't going to happen. And me playing the Blue Danube waltz <laughs> at a piano recital wasn't going to do anything to further my cause. <laughs> so the piano teacher told my mom I had no no musical talent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no problem. She she didn't mind me splitting, and I didn't mind it either. Yeah. And then a few years later, like around this Black Sabbathy time, um, there was a place called Don Warner Music. It was the local music store in Richmond where you could go pluck on basses and admire the number of flags on sheet music uh, of yes songs. <laughs> if you want to try and get into Chris Squire, I would count the number of flags on some of those 30 second notes he plays. 
Um, but they gave lessons, and I, I, I took lessons from a guy named Jocko McNelly. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, a bass player in the 70s. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> Jocko. Um, but he was a great guy, really cool, and he really got it. You know, he understood that kids were going to come in and bring in predictably boring or, or, you know, he didn't try to push the rudiments. He'd find songs that displayed them. Yeah. Like you want to learn how to play major bass lines, major scale bass lines. Here's Obla Dio Blada. Right. Go learn that, you know, but at one point I brought in some Grateful Dead music off of Europe 72 for him. Uh. <laughs> and then he looks at me and he goes, are you sure you don't just want to play the piano? <laughs> so it, it kind of all came back around full circle and I, I stopped taking the lessons, but I did manage to buy a bass, a little cabinet, a little sun cabinet with a head. Nice. Do you still have your first uh, rig? I know some people still have their first guitars and stuff. Do you still have yours? I think the speaker cabinet was probably integrated into my high school band's PA. Uh-huh. Which it means it may still be somewhere in Richmond. <laughs> uh, I still have the bass. It nice. was a Memphis P bass copy, which weighed about eighty pounds. It's <laughs> heavier than my Olympic. <laughs> um, but it was le- it would uh, prop on a record, Black Sabbath, something simple, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, um, and just try to play along and try totally. to get the vibe. And I think in doing that, I I, I found out what groove was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a, a lot of smoke and dope. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was, it's so much classic rock. But I was a, listening to contemporary music when I was four and five years old. And then Richmond did, to its credit, have, they had a very pop FM radio station. And, and if you think about pop music in the 70s, it wasn't all bad. Yeah. Um, but then they also had a way, you know, pretty far right FM. A station called XL 102 that was your really classic 70s FM station where DJs picked what they wanted to play. Yeah, nice. Talked about stuff and really, really promoted like the the club level shows that would mm-hmm. come to Richmond. Um, and so it was like a window into a whole nother world and I was exposed to all kinds of amazing music. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I love how, I mean, just hungry for it you were since you were a kid you know like that's that's it it definitely like translates into your playing i feel like and and just your passion for music just when talking about records and stuff with you you know you can tell that it's been like a lifelong trip for you and that's what's so cool about it i think yeah it's you've nailed it right there yeah to find like-minded people is a joy to, to play with or to go to a, a record store with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that time I, I found you and Graham at Red Devil. Yeah. Said, no. oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think bumping into you at Red Devil cost me a couple hundred dollars with the stuff that you uh, told me I had to get. <laughs> well, I'm just paying it forward. You know, it's like go to a record store with Neil Castall and you're going to wind up spending a lot of money too. Dude, you don't have this. You've got to get it. <laughs> Truth, man. <laughs> It's on the wall, man. It costs 60 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's always the stuff on the wall. <laughs> Got to look there first. If you go into, uh, you know, go to a store with someone like yeah. Neil, me and Dwayne and Jesse Aycock and, and Neil go to a store in Austin. Uh-huh. It's going to get like, it's like vultures <laughs> at a car. <carcass. laughs> the, the shop owners just like thanking God. Luckiest day ever to see you guys walk in. <laughs> 
uh, or he'll curse Jesse Acock because while Neil and I might go to these particular sections or the wall, mm-hmm. Jesse's on his hands and knees. Uh-huh. And Jesse will find a Grail record that's $100 that not even the record store knows. Yeah. About. And he'll pay a dollar for it and he'll shyly sit there quietly watching all of us brag about these <laughs> fancy pants Grail records we just bought. <laughs> and then he's like, look, I found this trees record. <laughs> worth a hundred dollars it's still in shrink <laughs> we're like jesse <laughs> oh man well yeah it's it's a lifelong th- it's an addiction I, it it's is. a health addiction it is and i i'm i'm hoping that uh i can get a fix soon man you know it's it's rough not being able to go shopping for records these days you know it is yeah. i've been doing a, a good bit of shopping online um, it's not the same though online it's not the same. It's not the, the, the tactile experience yeah. and the talk to the people. You know, there's nothing I love more than a, a stereotypical used record store oh, guy. Um, but, you know, I buy a gift certificate every week from uh, last record store up here in Santa Rosa, try and keep them awesome. cooking. Um, when friends, you know, put out records, I'll buy a couple copies, especially if they're, you know, first run like colored vinyl. Mm-hmm. You know, all of our friends had the the bad timing to drop records yeah no doubt right things started. yeah so you know that's that's rough it's uh it's an investment um when they're in the studio paying to record their music it's also a time where they're not on the road making hay yeah. and selling tickets and exposing people to their music and then uh all of a sudden they can't do a tour to support, to support a record yeah. that was a big investment um and it makes me feel really uh grateful that i'm basically semi-retired right yeah because i mean what does the future look like for this industry it's it's wild to think about it's a long way off yeah and it, it kind of sucks but at the same time necessity is the mother of invention and a lot of these groups are coming up with really innovative ways to get their music heard mm-hmm. and um back to the matter at hand they they certainly it hasn't stopped me from purchasing their product. Yeah. Which is awesome. Which is something else I'm grateful for in that we live in this age where I can, you know, buy three copies of the circles around the sun record or a couple of Mapache records. Um, it's, it's the way it is yeah. kind of, it's the way it's gotta be. But every time I talk to these band members, they're like, I'm riding up a storm. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm hoping that a lot of good records come out of this period. You know what I mean? It's it's a good time to be creative and a good time to be productive, and people still need music. You know, it's 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 a necessity for everybody, and uh, we just have to digest it in a different way until we can all come together for shows again, whenever that's going to be. Exactly. We don't know when, but we do know it's going to be one hell of a celebration and a party. No doubt. Which uh, brings me to my third record. Let's hear it. <laughs> this is kind of a, a great little natural segue. And, and I'm going to use The Grateful Dead um, as a springboard, but it's not the record that changed my life. Okay. But it did make me realize something. And so the point I'm going to make is I think it's amazing how many musicians are creating and putting new music out into the sphere. Um, uh, People like Craig Broadhead from the band Turquoise is composing cool dance music and discovering things and 
Um, everybody's doing it, whether they're live streaming, mm-hmm. uh, taking requests for covers, requests for their own songs, playing new stuff. Um, some people are surprised dropping records yeah. during this whole thing. Uh, other people are live, live composing. Um, it's just been amazing. But the one thing that we can't do, which is the one thing I've made the most hay and has most changed my life is the sort of psychic spiritual connection of the fellowship of being on stage together and improvising. Yeah. We can't do that. I mean, zoom will allow the sort of illusion of that because the latency is down now where people could actually kind of play together if they've got broadband, Mm -hmm. but it's not, you're not, smelling what that guy ate for dinner you haven't gotten off the bus after six weeks hating each other and realize that you love each other once you get on stage (laughs) there's not the uh instant feedback of the sound of the room and the sound of the audience and the sound of everything and the visceral compression and concussion of sound hitting flesh and bone um so This school I went to had this sort of charity event called a Village Green Fair Mm -hmm. once a year and everybody would go and and it was fun. And a lot of people would sell off stuff from their attics. And I just gotten a mid-level stereo. It's probably 1978 or 79, maybe a little earlier, probably 75 because it had an eight track tape player in it. Sweet. And at this Village Green Fair, there was a white elephant sale. Um, and I bought a box of random eight tracks just so I'd have some things to listen to. Um, I think, uh, Jethro Tull's thick as a brick was in there. Um, Led Zeppelin two was in there and this crazy skull and roses looking record <laughs> eight track. And I looked at it and it had, uh, had a couple songs I knew on it. It had not fade away, which I knew was a buddy Holly song and it heard. And of course it had Johnny be good. Everybody knows that Chuck Berry. And so I pop it in and, you know, eight track tape players are a big loop. And so, you know, it starts wherever it was. You couldn't fast forward. You could only click over to the next track and start at the beginning of that one. So yeah, not fade away, kind of a taffy pull ish version of it. And this cool song going down the road, feeling bad. That was neat. Wharf rat. Don't get it. I'm too young. Bertha feels good playing in the band. That's a happy peppy song. Cool. <laughs> cool. Can I count that? I don't what is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then this like thing happens. Fucking five minute drum solo. I'm like, what's going on here? And then this bass just unzips the sky. This <laughs> bass thing. It's just like the sky just had a huge industrial zipper and the blue sky opened up this whole rainbow i didn't know what the hell it was i'd never heard any music like that i didn't know what it was i didn't like it (laughs) i did really like it (laughs) (laughs) it's like some of those old looney tunes cartoons where it's it's like they're looking at weird impressionist art and the cartoon characters having is like in some nightmare you know and everything's all (laughs) fucked up and weird and barely recognizable and just didn't know what was going on it was so upsetting and so intriguing all at the same time yeah um so 
as I went down the Grateful Dead rabbit hole, I realized that they weren't just a psychedelic band. They weren't just a sort of weird country band. They didn't just play this shuffle called trucking, <laughs> you know, and uh, I started going to see them. Mm. I got into, I understood. And, and of course, the Grateful Dead is a great gateway drug to other musics, the musics that influenced them. Um, so, yeah, all the covers they did, Morning Dew, I Know You Rider, you know, obviously not fade away doing it differently every night what's going on here improv got to be done with people that you dig which brings me to college and i meet the guys in widespread panic john bell and mike hauser and we got this little thing and we uh we find this drummer named joel and we got some original songs and we go into the studio and we record about five songs i think we recorded uh a song called Sleepy Monkey. We recorded a song called Stop and Go, which is sort of a fire on the mountain-y kind of rip-off sort of thing. <laughs> um, and we didn't know how to play, but we knew how to play together and amuse ourselves, and we liked what we did, yeah. and we didn't yeah. have to have jobs. Hmm. This was 1984, 85, 86 in Athens, Georgia. It was a really special time in that town. Um, and we went, we recorded a song called Coconut. And we made a cart, which is basically an eight track tape with only one channel. <laughs> and gave it to the college radio station at the University of Georgia and they started playing it. Nice. And so then we decided we'd make a seven inch. And so we edited down this Sleepy Monkey song and edited down this Coconut song and called them Images. So we made a 45 on a label that was our own called Space Baby. <laughs> we went out to this town called Winterville where we recorded with this local hippie engineer named Wind, W-I-N-D. <laughs> um, and uh, so we made a record. And I'm going to, you know, this little 45 absolutely changed my life. The song Coconut, you can love it, you can hate it. I know that John Bell... His excuse is I wrote it when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, when I was a teenage boy on the beach looking at girls, smelling the smell of uh, the suntan oil, smells like coconuts, and they've got coconuts on their chests. And <laughs> teenage boy, you know, and it just, it blew the fuck up, Ross. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it got the band started. Love it or hate it. You know, I'm going to just take the fifth. I mean, I didn't write it and I don't have to sing it. It's fun <laughs> to play once or twice a year. You guys still do? Every now and then for fun. We, we, we took a hiatus. I mean, it got so bad that we got so tired of people, like especially these entitled, you know, little sorority girls from UGA, uh -huh. working their way up to the front of the nightclub crowd and going, play the coconut song. <laughs> and we'd be like... uh you know, okay, God. we got to where we'd open shows with it just to get it out of the way. Right. Which right. of course didn't matter because these types of people miss the first song. They should right, the like, she's like, play the coconut song. <laughs> wink, wink. Look at me. I'm cute. And we'd be like, we already played it. <laughs> like, play it again. <laughs> so we, we gave it a, a little rest and, and we brought it back a few years later on Halloween when we started you know, just trying to surprise people on Halloween because uh -huh. to make this sort of circular, one thing Mike Hauser, 
and I really agreed on, which wasn't much other than we liked comedy and we liked playing together. We <laughs> loved Black Sabbath. And the whole Panic Halloween costume musical covers thing started because we were playing some party in Athens on Tibbetts Street, some guy's house, the night before our first Halloween gig. And we just started playing the song Paranoid. And then this guy named Spider, who was the roadie for a punk rock band called Porn Orchard, came <laughs> up and started singing the song Black Sabbath, which we kind of hacked our way through. But then the next night at the little nightclub we played all the time was Halloween. And we're like, let's do that Paranoid song again. You know, let's do that. That's cool. No one will expect that. We're a hippie band. We're the most loathed band in all of Athens. <laughs> you know, because, you know, R.E.M. and punk rock was big. E yeah, right. Fuck these hippies and their sorority fans. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> That's what we like to rock out, too. So, uh, uh, you know, that, that coconut image 45 changed my life. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I mean, well, that was the first record you guys had, right? That, that you had played on? That's right. Well, I'd played, uh, I had one other recording experience with my high school band, Midnight Jam. Um, and we, the, the, the singer's uncle was a recording engineer. And I think he still uh -huh. is in Virginia. Uh, oh, really? But he had a garage sort of recording studio. And we hauled our stuff in there and we recorded two original songs. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like on a tape though, right? Oh, totally on tape. Yeah. Just, just on tape. But I mean like that first time you had your music on a record, what was that like? I mean, I, I remember the first time I got like my like test pressings, you know, of my record and like, it like brought me to tears, you know, like it, it seemed like this stuff that, these these things that I've been so passionate about my whole life and like oh my god like that's my music on on one of those records did 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 it feel that way to you yeah it did you know i mean it was it was pretty incredible um and then you know to get to just to to get the encouragement that goes along with that feeling you mentioned mm -hmm. from people liking it uh, we yeah. made like 500 copies of this single and, you know, most of them were given away to our friends. Right, right. Um, and then it was a couple of years of busily replacing all the cover songs we did with our own music. And then we got signed to an independent label out of Atlanta that also had signed Colonel Bruce Hampton. So, like, <laughs> okay, so we're not normal. This, but we're, we're <laughs> like, we're being rewarded for not being normal and not doing what's expected of us. For being, yeah. that's right, rebellious. Yeah. And, and, and real and being authentic. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, considering the type of music that was going on by 1988, 89, when we put our first full length record out, I mean, there was great music and there was certainly college music, which was where a lot of the innovation was going on. Mm -hmm. um, but so much of that like weird 80s synth pop stuff, um, which doesn't, I mean, it sounds incredibly dated in the year 2020, but the melodies are still there. You know, I don't know when yeah. melody went away from music, but God, can someone please bring it back? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at some of those tunes back there. It's genius. Some of those melodies, you know, like bizarre love triangle and like just some of those eighties pop hits. Oh, it's, it's incredible. And the sounds, yeah. they were experimenting with sounds and you know, it's, I'm hoping if we want to talk about positive things that 
could maybe come out of this quarantine is let's just Fiona Apple's record. Yeah. This is like an artist expressing herself from a place of it's her lens. She's refracting it through no one else's expectations. No one's pacing around the studio going, I don't know if this is going to sell. This (laughs) is an artist expressing herself and, um, like the stuff or not, you can't listen to it without understanding that that's what it is. Um, it is yeah. unique expression from a highly personal place. And uh, boy, it's refreshing. Yeah, we, we need it now more than ever, too. I mean, no doubt about that. Absolutely. So, um, well, cool, man. I'd love to hear it. You said you got one more. Is that right? Well, that was the Panic 45. Oh, that's that's the two-parter. That I got you. The, cool. Awesome. Well, there is one more in that picture I sent you. Yeah, well, we'll we'll save that one. They can mute about which song off of Pink Floyd's "Metal" was the one that changed my life. I'll <laughs> 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 be the one you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. It's it's super cool to hear these stories from you and. Um, thanks a ton, man. Ross, thank you. It's just great to hear your voice. I know. I miss you, man. I miss you too. And, uh, keep doing this. This is great. Cool. Uh, that's my plan. And, um, be safe. And I hope to talk to you soon, man. You know, you will write some music for me. All right. I've been, I, you know, Vince Herman and I were texting each other last night, coming up with some songs. I'm, uh, I'm hungry to, to make some music for sure. Well, he's a good one to do it with. I will. You got it, man. All right. Take care, dude. All right, Ross. Bye. See ya. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dave Schools. Um, There's no joke there about it costing me a couple hundred bucks just bumping into him at the record store. (laughs) Um, So like I said, I've got a Spotify playlist going uh, featuring all the tunes that we discuss here on the program. Um, Give us a follow on Instagram at songs that save me. Go ahead, click the link in our bio, and you'll see uh, you'll see the Spotify playlist. Uh, stay tuned; lots of good episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, everybody, be safe out there. We'll see you next time on Songs That Saved Me. <laughs>